Ladies and gents, welcome back to the Pop Culture Podcast. Tyson Popplestone here, and today on the show we are joined by medical doctor and professor of neurology, Ray Dorsey. He's a professor at the University of Rochester, and he's working to eliminate the root causes of Parkinson's disease. This guy's research has been published in leading academic journals and heard in media outlets from all around the world. In 2020, him and his team wrote Ending Parkinson's Disease, a book which looks at how we can eliminate the world's fastest growing brain disease. In today's conversation, we talk about the root causes of Parkinson's with specific focus on air pollution and pesticides. We talk about how to prevent it, how to treat it, is there a cure, and so much more. This guy's a man with passion, a man with heart, and a man who's happy to stick it to the man of big business with your health at the forefront of his mind. It was a really good, really inspiring conversation. Really love my time with Dr. Ray Dorsey. So I hope you enjoyed this one. And with that said, welcome to the show for the very first time, Dr. Ray Dorsey. So what are you going to tell us, tough guys? My usual, zero, nothing. <laughs> I was uh, giving you a little bit of a background on, on how I first discovered you and the work that you were doing. And it was uh, through, unfortunately, my, my grandmother about three years ago being diagnosed with Parkinson's. And at the time when she started to speak about it with the family, I, I realized how little I actually knew about the disease, like with the exception of a couple of celebrities, Michael J. Fox, uh, the tremors. I realized that Parkinson's was something that was completely foreign to me, completely foreign to the whole family. And and naturally, I guess, whenever someone you, you love is, uh, you know, given a diagnosis you don't understand, the curiosity has, it sort of peaks. And uh, that's how I found you. I started to dig a little bit, find out, uh, hey, what, what causes this? Is there a way to cure it? Is there a way to prevent it? Is there anything that we can actually do? And I was really inspired by uh, the message that, that you share, both in the podcast, the books, the research that uh, you're doing over there. But I thought maybe as a way of introduction, there'd be a lot of people who are hearing you speak, and this might be their introduction to the subject of Parkinson's disease. And I'm sure the foundation or the understanding that they have about it was very similar to mine just a few years ago. So perhaps I could hand it to you uh, as a way of introduction, and you could perhaps lay the foundation of when we're speaking about Parkinson's disease, what is it we're actually speaking about? What's taking place under the surface? First of all, Tyson, thanks very much for having me. Second, uh, sorry to hear about your grandmother. As we're going to discuss, I, I don't think Parkinson's is a, natu- is a natural consequence of aging. I think it's an artificial uh, consequence of aging. So third, Parkinson's disease is the world's fastest growing brain disease, um, classically associated with a tremor, usually in the hands, usually asymmetric, slowness in movement, stiffness, and difficulties with walking or balance, um, thought at a high level to be due to loss of nerve cells in the brain that produce a chemical called uh, dopamine. It was first described by Dr. James Parkinson in 1817 in London. He was 61 years old. He was a surgeon, been practicing medicine or surgery for 30 plus years. I think even his father was a physician. And he said he was describing something that had not been dis- not been classified in the medical literature, something new on the streets of London. And when he described uh the disease in 1817, he described six people with the disease. 200 years later, the Global Burden of Disease Study estimated that over 6 million people have the disease. So we've gone from something that was likely very rare uh, 200 years ago to something that's now exceedingly common. Um, and I think environment uh, or environmental factors are the chief reason for its rise. 
Mm. It's a really interesting conversation. I'm not sure how much you get this response, but a lot of the time when I hear someone speak about a disease, and perhaps because of the statistics you just offered, often people go, ah, unfortunately, this is just a part of aging. Now, I know this is something that you've already said is not something that uh, you believe is necessarily a a strong or, or, or leading cause. But it blows my mind how often people just take it as a way of life. Okay, Parkinson's disease has been around. My grandma's got it. Someone I know has got it. Hopefully, I'll try and avoid it. But they feel almost as though they have no power to control how much influence they have over whether or not they're, they're going to get it. Yeah, I, I couldn't disagree more. I, I don't think these are natural consequences of aging. I, I don't think the baseline is that one, two, three percent of people over 65 are supposed to get Parkinson's disease. No more than I believe that one in eight women should have breast cancer or one in eight women have prostate cancer. We need to ask why so many people are getting breast cancer. Why are so many people getting prostate cancer? How could have early humans survived if one in eight of women were getting breast cancer? Um, you know, uh, in the U.S., no president has ever been diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. No president until Ronald Reagan was ever diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. We've had longevity for long periods of time. Um, you know, in 1800s, there were, you know, ben, in, in the United States, Ben Franklin, George Washington, John Adams, Thomas Jefferson, living into their 80s, into their 90s. And none of them were having these diseases. Uh, and I'm sure the same is likely the case in Australia. Um, these, there are reasons why these diseases are increasingly common. And I think if you look really, really hard, uh, we know that it's not genetics for the vast majority of individuals. And so that really leaves the environment as its uh, main culprit. Yeah, and this is something that I've, I've heard you speak on um, in, in a whole heap of depth. And this is something which is both incredibly frustrating, makes me incredibly angry. But I think the flip side of that is leaves me feeling uh, relatively passionate and with a whole lot of hope that this can be a disease of the past inspired by yourself. And uh, th- that's perhaps a, a nice little entryway into uh, what I was hoping to form a lot of the conversation around, which is the, the, the main causes but also what we can do to prevent it and what people with the disease currently can do to either slow the process of development or, or you know, hopefully halt it, cure it. I'll let you be the guide. But um, I know the cause issue is, is one that's a, a really interesting conversation. I mean, the development of the disease, as you've just said, has been so rapid in that, what was it, 130 years? If in I've 200 got the years, dates. we've gone from six to six million. Six to six million in 200 years. Um, so what are the causes? I'll tell you what I think are the three most important uh, causes of Parkinson's. I could be wrong, uh, but these are this is what I think, and they're environmental. Um, so number one uh, are certain pesticides. There's a pesticide called Paraquat. It kills the weeds that Roundup can't. It's, uh, it was created in the 1950s, commercialized in the 1960s. It's considered the most toxic weed killer ever created. Uh, one sip can kill, according to the United States Environmental Protection Agency. It's been used to commit homicide and suicide in over 30 countries, including China, has banned it. But the United States, neither the United States nor Australia, to my knowledge, has banned it. So this pesticide is sprayed on corn, sprayed on cotton, sprayed on vineyards, including vineyards 30 minutes from where I'm sitting in upstate New York. And my guess is it's sprayed um, in, on fields in Australia and perhaps, you know, it's growing season in Australia probably being sprayed right now. And I think along with it, the seeds of Parkinson's disease. Paraquat in epidemiological studies and human studies is associated with a 150% increased risk of developing Parkinson's. 
a 150% increased risk of developing Parkinson's. Numerous researchers around the world have demonstrated that when you feed paraquat, paraquat to laboratory animals, they develop the clinical and pathological features of Parkinson's disease. But what's even more shocking is an expose from the British uh, journal called The Guardian from a year ago in which they looked at uh, records from the manufacturer of paraquat, which is being sued in the United States and elsewhere, in my understanding, uh, for Parkinson's disease by people who use the chemical and subsequently develop Parkinson's disease. And they found out that the company knew about its ties to Parkinson's disease for over 50 years, for over 50 years, and hid it. They knew in the 1960s that when they fed paraquat in high doses to mice, to rats, and to rabbits, that they developed Parkinson's disease. So they knew before I was born that when they exposed three different, not one, not two, but three different species of mammals to paraquat, they developed the pathological features of Parkinson's disease. They didn't seek to withdraw their product. They didn't seek to introduce a safer version of their product. They sought to double down under a campaign to freedom to sell, a freedom to sell this toxic pesticide in the United States, a freedom to sell this toxic pesticide in Australia. So that's the uh, first yeah. one. Yeah, sorry Second. to interrupt you there. Yeah, I was yeah. just going to say I had a little Google. You're right. Uh, for paraquat, it is still widely used uh, here in Australia because I, I heard you speak last night in the Ultimate Health podcast and was reminded that in the US it was uh, still commonly used. And I thought, oh, if I see this is used in Australia, it's going <laughs> to make my blood boil. I wish I hadn't have checked it just before I came on here because, yeah, you're 100% right. We are apparently, if I've, I've Googled right, it's still quite widely used. Yeah, and if you just Google uh, Guardian plus Paraquat, uh, you'll find an excellent expose uh, by journalists on the topic. Um, the second uh, most important or second important environmental cause are, are dry cleaning chemicals, if you can believe it. Uh, one's called trichloroethylene. That's a really, really simple molecule. Your listeners know that water is made up of three atoms, H2O, two hydrogens and one oxygen. Trichloroethylene is made up of six atoms. Uh, two carbon atoms in black for those uh, watching, one hydrogen atom in white, and then three chlorine atoms in green, hence its name trichloroethylene. That and its sister compound, perchloroethylene, exactly the same molecule except instead of having three chlorine atoms, it has four chlorine atoms, um, are widely used in dry cleaning, degreasing, and even decaffeinating coffee. Uh, these chemicals were ubiquitous uh, in the 1970s. It's estimated that 10 million Americans worked with these chemicals. Estimated that one in 12 workers in the United Kingdom worked with these uh, chemicals, akin to saying like everyone in retail working with uh, these chemicals. These chemicals are associated with a 500% increased risk of developing Parkinson's disease. And when, when TCE trichloroethylene has been fed to laboratory animals, they too develop the clinical and pathological features uh, of uh, Parkinson's disease. And you don't have to work with these chemicals. These chemicals contaminate the groundwater in the United States. They contaminate the groundwater in Australia. Um, and I think these chemicals, not only can you drink them, but they like radon, they can evaporate from contaminated groundwater and soil into your kids' schools, your workplaces, or your homes undetected. And you can be breathing these chemicals uh, in. And the final major uh, environmental risk factor, I think, is air pollution, outdoor uh, ambient air pollution. Uh, in the United States, some of you may know that we had the Canadian wildfires this past summer, which turned the Big Apple, New York City, uh, orange. And that level of air pollution is what was uh, 
apparent on the streets of London in 1800 when Dr. Parkinson's describing the condition. That London fog had little to do with weather and everything to do with air pollution. And air pollution that he was experiencing in 1800 London was akin to what New York City uh, was experiencing this past summer or what Delhi, India, and Beijing, China experience on a daily basis uh, today among the worst level of air pollution in the world. And there have been an increasing number of studies linking air pollution uh, to Parkinson's disease. So the three major environmental causes, one, certain pesticides, especially a pesticide called paraquat, two, these dry cleaning chemicals known, called trichloroethylene or perchloroethylene, um, and uh, outdoor air pollution. Yeah, you see, I hear you speak about those things. And with the exception of dry cleaning and degreasing, and correct me if I'm wrong, because I know that they do infiltrate a lot of homes, especially uh, in New York and I'm sure other places around the world, it sounds as though that the pesticides factor and the air pollution factor, they seem, from my own opinion, to, to be the most challenging ones to, to, to avoid. Now, I could be wrong, and feel free to correct me. Um, yeah, so, uh, so our health today, the health that you enjoy and that I enjoy today is largely a function of the environment that we've experienced in the past. So the health we enjoy today is largely a function of the environment that we've experienced in the past. Now, um, to what extent do we control the environment that we experience? I don't think we control it very well, right? You know, if you grew up on a farm, you know, you, as a kid, you didn't like have a conscious decision. <laughs> I'm going to grow up on a farm, uh, uh, grow up on a farm or not. Uh, conversely, most of the people who work with these chemicals have no idea. A, most people don't know that they're trichloroethylene and perchloroethylene. Two, don't know that they're known to cause cancer. I should have mentioned that trichloroethylene is a known carcinogen, according to the World Health Organization, and known to cause cancer, according to the U.S. US Environmental Protection Agency. Um, and then air pollution, you know, is really hard to avoid. In China, air pollution is so bad that to allow kids, uh, school-age kids, some fancy schools build domes over their schools so that the kids can play soccer underneath a dome. But I think largely these things are not dictated by, these aren't individual decisions. We should not be blaming the people who have Parkinson's disease for the disease that they have. These are societal decisions and I think are reflecting the actions of certain bad actors, many of whom apparently know about their toxic effects, but have sought to double down on a blockbuster product rather than introduce a safer alternative. So I, I think that the people to blame here are those who are uh, producing uh, these chemicals who know, allegedly know, likely know, or should know about their toxic effects. And the rest of us are subsidizing uh, their sales um, by suffering the health consequences. Yeah. So with reference to pesticides, that was a question that I wanted to ask you. Is this purely a financially driven thing if the data has been proven since i think uh, the 60s or for the last 60 years then obviously something's going on which is giving whoever it is that's uh, developing selling these products some level of confidence or arrogance to keep doing so but it, to the average person you hear that and you think oh surely evil doesn't exist so blatantly in an industry like this but it, it does seem amazing that when you have a team of people around you with the same goals, uh, with the same quarterly reports that need to be developed to, to stockholders, shareholders, to the public, then all of a sudden it seems very easy to justify a lot of questionable behavior in the name of profits. Well, um, you know, the pesticide companies can speak for themselves, but, uh, you know, fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. 
Um, in the 40s and 50s, we had, and well into the 90s, we had tobacco companies deliberately obscuring the uh, adverse health effects of smoking. Lung cancer in the United States, lung cancer deaths in the United States 100 years ago was almost zero. I'll say that again. Lung cancer, leading cause of cancer death in the United States, leading cause of cancer death in the world, almost didn't exist 100 years ago. It wasn't until the advent of cigarettes in the early 1900s in the United States that 25 years later, you see a corresponding rise in the rates of lung cancer deaths. One of the great public health achievements, Surgeon General report in the United States, 1962, smoking causes lung cancer. Uh, smoking peaks, decreases, and 25 years later, uh, the rates of lung cancer decrease. If you think it's just not lung cancer, I mean, look at the opioid uh, uh, epidemic, which I'm sure has affected Australia as well as it has the United States. If you want to look at uh, modern things, look at social media. I mean, look at the reporting from the Wall Street Journal uh, indicating that companies, some of these social media companies knew about the toxic, know about the toxic effects of social media on the mental health of uh, teenagers, especially teenage girls, one third of whom are depressed in the United States. And... Um, they continue to engage in this behavior. If we know that, the, according to the reports from The Guardian, that a pesticide manufacturer is doing this for Paraquat, we should ask what other environmental toxicants is this applying to for Parkinson's and what other environmental toxicants is this applying to for other diseases, prostate cancer, breast cancer, heart disease, and many other conditions. I'm sure there's a lot of people listening who go, okay, well, paraquat, it's something which is used on farms. It's something which is used, as you say, to kill the things that uh, round up uh, can't kill if I if I've understood you correctly, and so a lot of people hear that and they say, okay, well, I'm not on a farm, I'm in a coastal town, or I'm not on a farm, I'm in a city, I'm nowhere near that. But I guess the use of uh, these pesticides is is far and wide and can be quite deceptive in the way that it finds its way to you. So, um, how is it that that people uh, through or people who are nowhere near where something like a pesticide like paraquat is being used uh, are being impacted by it? My guess is obviously. Um, the fruits, the vegetables, the things that we're eating are, are being heavily sprayed or at least uh, copying a little bit of the offshoot of sprays. Um, uh, farmers, I mean, it, it makes sense. I think I've heard you speak about the extent of farmers and their uh, the rates of exposure to these pesticides and the, the rates of increase in, um, in, in Parkinson's disease. But could you talk to that a little bit? Because it, it sometimes seems that people... Uh, consider themselves separate from where these sprays are actually being used. Yeah. So um, at a high level, if you look at rate, if you look at Parkinson's disease, uh, there are numerous studies in numerous parts of the world that show a near perfect correlation between the rates of Parkinson's disease uh, and the amount of pesticide used in rural areas. So in Canada in the 1980s, this guy, Barbeau, showed a near perfect correlation between rates of pesticide use in rural parts of Canada and rates of Parkinson's. That same kind of study has been replicated in France and vineyards. It's been replicated in Israel and other parts of the world. Now, so in rural areas, I think pesticides are a big issue. I think in urban areas, I think trichloroethylene, these industrial solvents and air pollution are a big issue. But we should be mindful, as I said, early childhood exposure could be what's laying the seeds for people developing Parkinson's disease 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years later. So even though you may now live in Sydney, you may now live in Melbourne, Melbourne, I can't, how do you spell, how do you pronounce Melbourne? <laughs> no, you did pretty well, Melbourne. Melbourne. 
uh, is uh, uh, you could have been growing up on a farm and you may not have even grown up on a farm. You could just been growing in a rural area and they spray the pesticides. Paraquat, for example, is sprayed and you could be inhaling it. Um, and we sh- we've been warned about this. Rachel Carson in 1962, she wrote Silent Spring, uh, not because she was against pesticides. She was against the indiscriminate use of pesticides, especially DDT in this class of fat soluble uh, fat dissolving pesticides called organochlorines. And it turned out there's another new condition. So I mentioned that Parkinson's first major description is in 1817. There's another Parkinsonian disorder called dementia with Lewy bodies. It's basically really bad Parkinson's plus really de- bad dementia mixed together. And the first report of that condition was 1976. So the first report of this condition, which is estimated to affect up to a million Americans, is in 1976 in Japan, by a Japanese psychiatrist who was wondering whether this was a new disease. He even has that question in one of the titles of his paper. So I looked back and I said, well, what's in the water and the food in 1960 in, 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 in Japan around this time? And it turns out after World War II, Japanese start spraying DDT and other pesticides called organochlorines on the rice paddies. Hmm. And these uh, the pesticides dissolve in fat. And so if you, they looked at the fat levels of these pesticides in the fat tissue, in the adipose tissue of Japanese, of the population. And you could see a corresponding rise in the rates of these fat-soluble pesticides in people's fatty tissues, like, you know, subcutaneous fat. They see rise of these pesticides, probably because they're consuming it, probably in their food, because it's fat-soluble. Um... And then it correlates with the appearance of a new uh, disease. And as soon as Japan bans uh, DDT and other pesticides in the 1970s, you see a corresponding decline in the levels of this. And we see this in Europe. We see this in the United States, where you stop using these pesticides, the levels of these pesticides and their metabolites in people's fatty tissue drops. And I think that's a hopeful silver lining that if you, as these things drop, you could see in the future lower rates of Parkinson's disease, lower rates of dementia with Lewy bodies. Now it's a hypothesis. It needs to be tested. It needs to be proven. But there's a lot of hope here that if we stop using these environmental toxicants and stop using them indiscriminately and stop using them in increasing amounts, we can stop, uh, have, create a world where Parkinson's disease, dementia with Lewy bodies and other diseases are increasingly rare. Yeah. I, I live in a relatively small coastal town here in Victoria, Australia, uh, I'm not sure of the population, but it's it's not big. There'd be a few thousand in the town that I'm in. And part of the reason I moved out here is because I've got two young boys. I've got a three-year-old. I've got a one-year-old. One of the factors was a lifestyle factor. We're in the city. Um, we love the city. I still love to visit the city. But in terms of uh, just letting my boys be out and about and run around, I thought it'd be a fun environment for them to grow up in. And naturally, you come down, you get out of the car, you smell the ocean air, you can smell <coughs> that it's fresh. And so I go, okay, well, this is good news. But even recently, I live in um, a, a little place in my town. It's called The Point, and it's a relatively small community. But recently, I saw the Melbourne City Council, the Geelong City Council, uh, a guy came along. He, he had the full hazmat suit on. He had the mask, and he was walking around our, our suburb on behalf of the council, spraying off weeds with uh, a particular gun. Uh, I don't know what it's actually called, the formal name for it. But it blew my mind that somehow, I don't know what the actual pesticide that was being sprayed was, I assume it's a roundup of some sort, but it blew my mind that a council in the name of keeping a particular town clean or free from weeds 
were comfortable because there's a lot of young families, kids playing around, uh, kids digging in gardens. It, it frustrated me that there was such a level of um, ignorance or lack of knowledge around what was actually taking place that this was approved. Like, give me weeds. I, I, who was the chick who sang that song? Don't worry about spots on my apples. Give me the birds and the bees. It was a little bit. Of, <laughs> it was a little bit of that feeling going on. But I thought, hey, don't don't stress about the weeds. We can take care of that. But still, um, it seems like big council, a lot of the time, take the easier option or the financial option, with a complete disrespect for the health of those that they're claiming to to protect. And so uh, let's pick up on that. So, you know, DDT was created, um, was first used in World War II to prevent malaria. Okay. You know, you're like, I'm going to prevent thousands, if not millions of people getting malaria. Okay, I'm going to take a little risk on uh, DDT. But am I going to do this for my kids' soccer fields so they don't have weeds? And and, and this is not a theoretical risk. Um, there have been three studies in England in, I mean, sorry, Scotland and Spain and Italy that have shown that soccer players are at increased risk for ALS, motor neuron disease, Lou Gehrig's disease, the United States. Three different studies, three different parts of the world showing that soccer players are at increased risk for developing ALS. And I'm like, well, why is that? And I thought about, you know, head trauma obviously is one, but the other thing is they have, they're exposed to pesticides. And so they're playing on soccer fields, pitches, football fields. I forgot what you would say in Australia. Soccer, yeah. Uh, soccer. And um, they're playing on it all the time. They're coming into skin contact. They're breathing it. They play with their cleats. They bring their cleats home. On their cleats are pesticides. The pesticides get into their indoor air, and people are breathing it in. And it's not just ALS. You know, cancers have been associated with certain pesticides and other things. So we're doing all of this on golf courses, on utility poles, on our yards, all in the name of not having dandelions. I think we're paying a really, 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 really high price for that. You know, I told you about these chemicals, which are used perchloroethylene is still used in Australia, is my understanding, for dry cleaning. Also, our closed stones shrink. We're exposing ourselves to a chemical that likely causes cancer and is associated with an increased 500% increased risk of Parkinson's for dry cleaning. Um, we, if we just apply some sanity checks to this, we can live longer, healthier lives. You mentioned the point. I'm ready to come out for a visit. Um, but if you've seen the Netflix uh, series Blue Zones, they go to all these different areas of the world that all have super uh, uh, long, longe- long, long, super long longevity. People in their 90s, 80s, 90s, and 100s. I and watching the whole series, I only saw one per- with person with Parkinson's disease. That's why I end up spending a lot of time. And none with Alzheimer's, right? No Alzheimer's in any of those videos. And I saw one person with uh, Parkinson's disease. And um, the the director of it was uh, focuses on the environment. He focuses on the social environment. But all these places are pristine. They all had very clean air. They all had clean water. And they all had clean food. If you have clean air, if you have clean uh, water, and you have clean food, you can live long, healthy lives. I think lives are largely free of many of these neurodegenerative conditions like ALS like Parkinson's disease and like Alzheimer's disease. Yeah, a really great documentary. I have seen it. I read the book a couple of years ago, and you're right. The thing we keep coming back to is, okay, we've made the decision we want to make a difference. Obviously, we want the the, the umbrella of people, the decision makers, the farmers, the, whoever are actually allowing these things to take place, the thing, things that are leading to bad air quality, bad food quality, 
um, you know, and straight pants or unshrunken pants for lack of a better explanation. <laughs> we want that to be improved. We want it to be changed. But like anything like this, it's, it's going to take years, I imagine, before we see people in control or people in charge actually making those changes. And so in the meantime, we sit here and we say, okay, well, what what can I actually do? What is within my control to make a change to my own life to hopefully prevent something like this kicking in? And I've heard you speak, perhaps we could start in regards to, to diet nutrition, because I've heard you speak about this a little bit. Um, I made a move to, to eating organic food, uh, you know, almost solely about five or six years ago. Lucky for me, there's a great, pretty reasonably priced place here in Melbourne called Terra Madre for any locals, which serves in bulk um, uh, certified organic food, which I thought, okay, hey, this is a great place to start. Now, I would love to hear you speak to that, like the, the benefits of organic or, or lack thereof. Is that a move that we should make? But even with the organic food that we do have access to, obviously that's not completely free of these pesticides. So once we've made that move, what is it that we can do to, to even better our chances of an actual organic food? Yeah, so let's start with food. Um, uh, or, uh, since writing the book, uh, we wrote this book, uh, Ending Parkinson's uh, Disease, uh, available on Amazon or a lot of other booksellers and libraries. Um, uh, I've buy organic, uh, I w- wash in the United States levels of pesticide, organic produce isn't pesticide free. You still find levels of pesticides on organic uh, produce. Um, so I wash all my fruits and vegetables with water and a, uh, vegetable wash, just like, you know, you bathe with water and soap. You want to get, uh, water to wash away dirt, soap to get rid of oils. Some pesticides dissolve in fat and your brain's fatty. So you want to get those pesticides off. So uh, we just went and got uh, apples from the grocery store yesterday. And before they get put in the bowl, I washed them with, uh, put them in a glass bowl with water and a pesticide wash. Uh, I think all these things are even more important if you have Parkinson's disease, because by the time you're diagnosed with Parkinson's disease, 60% of those nerve cells that produce dopamine have died off. So you want to protect those remaining 40%. So everything I say here, I would uh, apply even more uh, to uh, people with the disease. Water, um, I used to think the water we drink is safe, and I don't necessarily think that's the case anymore. If you get your water from a well, I would have it regularly tested for pesticides if I lived in a rural area, and for these chemicals, trichloroethylene and perchloroethylene if I lived in an in urban area. I put a carbon filter, you know, from Pure or Brita or whatever uh, you want to do. I put that on my water at home, and that's the water I use um, to drink. And then air, um, it depends on where you live. You might live in a beautiful area where with really low levels of air pollution, and so that's fantastic, and so it may not be a major issue. If you don't, if you live in a major urban area, I would think about air, uh, air purifiers for, like, your uh, home. You can put those like in your bedroom, in your kitchen. My parents live in Southern California where air quality is not necessarily optimal. And so that's what we got them for uh, Christmas last year was uh, air purifiers. If you're driving through heavy traffic, uh, you should roll up your windows and and circulate the air within your car uh, so you don't bring in air, uh, heavily polluted air that you're that you're passing through, like, for example, through a tunnel. Um, and then I... I Tell people to think about um, dry cleaning. It turns out that these dry cleaning chemicals are off. They re- they're released from it. So if you put the dry cleaning into your car, uh, when you 
going home, you are breathing in that chemical. You put it into your closet in your bedroom, you are breathing in that chemical perhaps while you're sleeping. It's so bad um, that if you live in an apartment building above a dry cleaner in New York City, for example, they have found toxic levels of perchloroethylene, this chemical that's still widely used in dry cleaning in the United States and in Australia, toxic levels of the chemical in apartment buildings above dry cleaners in New York City. And because it's fat soluble, when you open the refrigerator and you take out the butter and the cheese, you will be eating perchloroethylene. If you take your daughter to the dry cleaner and she's got an ice cream cone with her, when she leaves the dry cleaner, she's going to be eating perchloroethylene. So um, I would be really mindful of it. There are dry cleaning alternatives. I end up using a dry cleaner that uh, doesn't use uh, perchloroethylene. I suspect those things are available. So I would think about that too. I think about, do I need to be putting spraying uh, pesticides in my yard? Uh, do my kids need to be, or do my kids' schools have uh, pesticides being used? In New York State, they put limits on the use of pesticides on kids' playgrounds. Um, and what what's going on at the golf course? Do I live near a golf course? There are studies that have shown that people who live downwind of uh, golf courses might be at higher risk. So I think there are tons and tons of things that we can do on our individual lives, but ultimately these issues are societal. Yeah, sure. And so a, a number of the uh, other ways that I've heard you speak about at least addressing or trying to prevent uh, Parkinson's disease from, from coming on is, is that in regards to exercise, like a lot of aerobic exercise seems to be one of the key features. But before I start speaking about that, I, I wanted to ask you about things like sauna. I know, I know sauna has been a relatively hot topic over the recent months and in my mind when you sit in a sauna you're sweating out all of these bad particles i'm not sure of the science behind that or the accuracy behind that statement but i was keen to hear you talk a little bit on that so i don't have good evidence on saunas Uh, we have a we live in rochester new york where it's cold and so uh two christmases ago our family uh christmas gift was a was a hot tub so i'm in the hot tub uh most many nights so i love the hot tub uh, and I like a sauna, but I don't know if there's good evidence for its use in Parkinson's disease. The problem in Parkinson's is that these chemicals likely lead to misfolding of a protein called alpha-synuclein, and that misfolding can spread from nerve cell to nerve cell and then into the brain. And so I think it's really, really hard to undo that misfolding. I think it's good to stop uh, people from getting ongoing exposure. And just like, you know, first thing you uh, doctor's going to tell a smoker who's diagnosed with lung cancer is to stop smoking. First thing that we should be telling people with Parkinson's disease, or one of the first things we should be telling people with Parkinson's disease, is stop getting exposed to environmental toxicants. Um, but I just don't, I don't, there's no great evidence, to my knowledge, about uh, sauna, for example. No great evidence about chelation, for example, if that's going, if we're going next. There was a study looking, it showed that people with Parkinson's disease are known to have high levels of iron in their brain. And we didn't really talk about that, but how does that iron get in the brain? I think the iron might be getting in from air pollution. So when you look in the sky and you see like, you know, Los Angeles, you see air pollution, you see smog, and you see little pieces of dirt and soot. And those little pieces of dirt and soot, some of them uh, hitchhiking on those pieces of dirt and soot are iron from brakes, lead from leaded gasoline, platinum from catalytic converters. And most of them we sneeze out and cough out, but some are so small that they go up into our nerve responsible for smell and back to the smell center for our, um, in our brains. And I think they might be bringing the iron into your brain. 
There was a study looking at iron chelation therapy uh, for people with Parkinson's disease. Not only was it not helpful, it was actually harmful. People did worse uh, with Parkinson's disease. So um, I think the key thing is to prevent these things from happening in the first place. If you already have the disease, prevent ongoing worsening of it. And then uh, as you alluded to, touched on, and we'll touch on more, is exercise can be a super great thing uh, to help improve help decrease your risk of ever getting Parkinson's and benefit people with the disease. Sure. I asked this next question with a, a little bit of caution because I think sometimes even asking these questions frames people in, in a particular way. And I definitely don't want it to come across as that, nor put you in a position to suggest that you've ever said anything that uh, you know is in line with this. But just in regards to um, the, the increase in Parkinson's disease, you know, that six to six million, it's it's unbelievable. Um, and the, the rate of... Uh, vaccination over the last 30 to sort of 40 years has has also increased rapidly now I've, I've heard people on both sides of the spectrum who both seem a lot smarter than me one person saying no it's completely safe and effective the other side of the argument saying no okay well we've got to be careful that there's not metals within this which is crossing a blood-brain barrier i'm not sure has there been any uh, research done into the links between things like that or are you relatively confident or um uh, you know happy with the current way that we're, we're vaccinating so freely or is it a, a non-issue um so i said that those are the three major environmental causes it turns out that there are viruses that we know likely produce parkinson's disease or parkinsonian disorders the big one was this something called the sleeping sickness following in the late late 1919 1920 likely due to a virus some think in the influenza virus from 1918 something a, a separate uh, virus that uh, caused people, young people, uh, to be, develop uh, Parkinsonism. Uh, any of your people who, any of your listeners who watched the movie Awakenings uh, with Robert De Niro and Robin Williams uh, highlighted the development of a medication called levodopa for Parkinson's disease that brought these people who were catatonic, were frozen in time, and brought them back to life. And that wasn't because they were exposed to pesticides, for example. Uh, these were likely people who got it as a consequence of likely a viral condition, likely uh, the sleeping sickness um, that affected the same same regions of the brain, not exactly the same structures, but many parts of the brain that we know are affected in Parkinson's disease. So it's possible there are other environmental causes. There's metals. There's other things that, that can cause it. And there are certainly there are likely unknown things that can cause it. So uh, you don't dismiss anything there. Um, listen, the greatest accomplishment, I think, of the 20th century uh, was an increase in life expectancy by 30 years. In almost every part of the world, humans went from a life expectancy of about 40, 45 to 75 uh, in industrialized nations. How did we get there? Well, we got clean water, clean food, and clean air. We started cleaning some of these things up. Air pollution was a little problem, problematic. But I think vaccines have really uh, changed the course of diseases. Um, yes, use of vaccines have gone up. So it's like watching television, too. I don't think we think that watching television uh, is causing sure. Parkinson's disease. But think of the things we don't have. Like no one, almost no one dies of, no one dies of smallpox today, yeah. not because we have a cure for smallpox but because we prevent it way fewer people are dying of covid today not because we have a cure for covid but because we can prevent it um fewer people uh, are dying of polio nearly eradicated uh not because uh we have a cure for it but because we can prevent it 
Think about how many millions of people don't get HIV, not because we can cure it, but because we can prevent it. And so I think there are huge things that we can do on the prevention front to change the course of diseases, just like we've changed the course of other diseases. Just the reason why we have longer life expectancy in 2000 than we did in 1900. We're giving that back in the 21st century, at least in the United States. But I I think vaccines are are unlikely to be a major reason uh, for uh, uh, Parkinson's disease. And I think vaccines on a whole have been one of the great uh, public health achievements of the 20th century. Yeah. In regards to big, um, what's it called? I guess it's big agriculture. Have you had much personal challenge thrown your way because of the message that you're putting out there? Has there been much uh, that you and your team are having to navigate your way through? Because I can imagine it's upsetting a lot of people who are trying to make money. Um, listen, um, we wrote a piece um, called... Uh, Parkinson's, paraquat, and agnotology. Um, <laughs> so when I shared that Guardian piece with one of my uh, colleagues, he's an, uh, an English professor, and he says, Ray, this is agnotology. And I go, what the heck is agnotology? Well, science is the production of knowledge, uh, ideally for the public's good. Agnotology is the deliberate production of ignorance, uh, often for commercial gain. And we've seen that with the tobacco industry. We saw they had doctors advertising the, about the health benefits of it. We've seen it with opioids. You know, you could not become addicted. I was taught in medical school at the, the United States of America's first medical school. I was taught that uh, it was really difficult, if not impossible, to become addicted to uh, opioids if someone was in pain. And it couldn't be more false. So we have had, uh, and, and we now know that the company's marketing, uh, the things we're hiring people to change the way doctors perceive and the public perceive the use of these uh, things. We talked about uh, changes in social media. Some of these companies are engaged in agnotology, the production of ignorance for commercial gain. It is, according to the Guardian, the company knew about some of these studies and against the law refused, did not disclose them to regulators. And at the same time, the same people who did not disclose it, did not disclose it, go on to say it's never been proven that paraquat causes Parkinson's disease. Let me say that again. The same company that has violated the law, according to The Guardian, in not disclosing studies linking their product to Parkinson's disease, now have the audacity to say that there have been no scientific studies showing that paraquat causes Parkinson's disease. Because you've buried it all. They've known far more about the dangers of paraquat and Parkinson's disease than the, than academic researchers. They were doing the experiments 30 years before academicians. And now they have the audacity to say there's no scientific studies showing that paraquat causes Parkinson's disease because they buried it all. It, it, it is unbelievable in this agnotology, this deliberate production of ignorance continues to go on and on and on. And until wrongdoers are held accountable, until wrongdoers are made to pay for their, uh, you know, for their activities and their actions, this will continue to be perpetrated, not just for Parkinson's disease, it'll be done for ALS, it'll be done for Alzheimer's disease, it'll be done for breast cancer, for prostate cancer, it'll be done for lots of people, and it'll be done at our expense. They don't want to pay for the health costs of their uh, actions. They view those as something that uh, other people should be paying for. But they will take their profits, they'll privatize their gains, they'll socialize their losses, and we should view that as completely unacceptable. Yeah. 
Do, do you think in 50 years' time we'll look back at these people in the same way that we do look back now at the doctors promoting the, the health benefits of smoking? Yeah, I, I don't think there's any doubt. This, this has been going on and on, and it'll go on. Listen, we all believe, breathe cleaner air. Think about this in Los Angeles. We breathe cleaner air in Los Angeles today than we did in 1970. The number of people in Los Angeles has increased over that time. The number of drivers has increased over that time. And economic productivity in Los Angeles has increased over that time. So we have more drivers driving um, greater distances with greater economic productivity, and we breathe cleaner air. The only false, the false trade-off here is that I mean, who wants to live in a heavily polluted area? You moved away from a heavily polluted area. No one wants to live in a heavily polluted area. There's an economic cost to having uh, pollution, and there's a health consequence uh, to doing so. If you, someone hires you to go to Beijing, you they'd have to pay you more uh, to go there because you know there would be a health consequence uh, to doing that. We should make sure that we stop socializing, stop subsidizing the polluters, make them pay for their products, just like we make tobacco companies now pay through taxes for the cost of their uh, products. And then we will all live longer and healthier lives because of it. Rates of lung cancer are plummeting. We can live longer, healthier lives free of Parkinson's disease, free of breast cancer, free of prostate cancer, free of ALS, free of Alzheimer's disease if we just take uh, actions to improve our environment and hold wrongdoers accountable. Yeah, yeah, really well said. I, I'm really interested, especially with reference to Blue Zones, which you mentioned just a few minutes ago. Uh, obviously, you look at the similarities in a lot of regards, whether it's uh, to, to diet, to the exercise routines, to the social aspects, to uh, whatever else it is that you want to mention. There's quite a few factors that Dan Butner mentions uh, throughout uh, the Blue Zones documentary. But one of the things which seems to be fairly prominent is uh, cultures with relatively low meat consumption. And if it is, uh, if they are consuming meat, it seems to be organic or self-raised meat or from at least a place that they know how it was raised. Um, I heard you say that since finishing the book, you've, you've uh, adopted a Mediterranean diet and at least gone vegetarian, if I'm, uh, if I'm not mistaken. Can you speak to the idea of uh, a, a more beneficial diet, if not the ideal diet for someone who is trying to prevent uh, uh, the onset of, of Parkinson's? Yeah, so uh, it turns out that uh, animals are not immune to the toxic effects of pesticides. Um, so animals eat plants, uh, often plants that are that have pesticides, and then they concentrate these pesticides, especially the fat-soluble ones, in themselves. And then when humans consume them, for example, consume fish, you're consuming not just the fish, but everything that the fish uh, consume. And so there's another class of chemicals uh, called PCBs, polychlorinated biphenols, that some studies have linked uh, to Parkinson's. And these uh, chemicals, which were used in the electronics industry, made their way into the food supply. And then you could find these chemicals in the in the fish that people were eating. And some areas of the world, I think in the North Atlantic, um, the rates of Parkinson's have been a little bit higher and they've been tied to the consumption of these fish. There have been studies, for example, that have linked milk consumption to Parkinson's disease. There are lots of possible explanations. I don't think it's milk uh, per se. I think it's what the cows have in their milk. and uh, there could be other reasons, but I think it's, I'm more concerned about what the, what's in the cow's milk. 
Mm. So it turned out in Hawaii, um, they uh, petitioned uh, the Pineapple Growers Association of Hawaii petitioned to have uh, the use of this pesticide called heptachlor. It belongs to the same class of pesticides as DDT, these organochlorines, dissolve in fat. And they sprayed them to protect the crop of the pineapples. The pineapples did fine. But they sprayed the top of these pineapples, you know, the green part is called the chop. And then they fed that chop uh, to cows uh, soon after being sprayed. Well, the cows liked the chop and they ate it. But the pesticide that they ate on that chop was fat soluble. And so where did they concentrate it? They concentrated it in the milk. And then that milk makes its way onto the shelves in Hawaii. And it turns out researchers, just by coincidence, were doing a study on aging uh, there. And uh, so when the local officials found out that uh, the milk supply was contained with, with heptachlor, they had to pull the, the milk from the shelves. These researchers then found that high milk consumption was associated in this area with Parkinson's disease. And when they looked at the brains of people who drank lots of milk, they found fewer dopamine-producing nerve cells in the parts of the brain. What else did they find? They found metabolites of heptachlor in the brains of people who drank high levels of milk in Hawaii who had Parkinson's disease. They found the smoking gun. So um, all from because people were spraying pesticides on pineapple chop that's being fed to the cows. So I think if we pay more attention to what the animals we eat are eating, uh, you know, as you alluded to, you know, organic uh, uh, meat products, I think you could have lower rates uh, of a Parkinson's disease, just like we told you about in Japan, when they start spraying these pesticides on the rice patties, it, it made its way into the food supply. And you can see levels of these pesticides in human fat tissue and the tissue from our own fat rising, the same thing can be happened there. So there have been studies that link uh, Mediterranean diet, lower in animal products to a lower risk of Parkinson's and potentially benefit for people with the disease. I'm not sure about the reasons for that. But to me, uh, I get really concerned about what is or is not in that in that meat, what is or is not in that fish, what is is or is not in that chicken. Um, and so if we can get rid of these pesticides, especially indiscriminate use of these pesticides, we can eat healthier food, uh, regardless of your preference and be less likely to develop a whole race, a whole range of uh, health conditions. Yeah. The, the two supermarkets in Australia that have a stranglehold on the market, our equivalent of Walmart, I guess you could say, is it's Coles and Woolworths. And both Coles and Woolworths have their own version of organic food, which is now available. So you could go in there five years ago and you could find organic food, but it was found in the version of, of other brands. And one thing that I suspect they've they've seen an opportunity, and especially with the rise of people eating organic food here in Australia, is that they could get more of a stranglehold by producing their own product. Now, when you see this food on the shelf, it's labelled organic. You look at it and you go, okay, well, surely this is good. But I know that, especially with regards to what we've been speaking about with uh, you know big agriculture, these pesticides companies, wherever a corner can be cut, and now I don't know if this is true. This is pure speculation. So. I'm not 100% sure whether this is true, but I look at that with a level of skepticism knowing that if there is a corner that can be cut, that corner <clears throat> will be cut in the production of that organic food. And so uh, maybe you could speak about it with, with more uh, regards to you know American supermarkets, but 
how stringent is the process in getting that organic label? Am I still just eating, uh, you know, the standard sprayed food and they've somehow figured out a way to label it in a way which is more appealing to, to people like us? I, I think it's good to be skeptical. Um, uh, again, I knew nothing about this. And again, I'm a neurologist. I'm not an agricultural expert. But when we looked at studies, it turned out that organic produce still has pesticides on it. And you're like, well, what's up with that? Um, and, um, my understanding simplistic is that sometimes, uh, organic produce is, for example, grown right next to, uh, produce that's sprayed with pesticides. So you can imagine that there's drift onto it. I think there's a study done of French wines that looked at pesticide residues in French wines and they found almost every French wine had residues of pesticides in it, even organic ones, albeit at lower, uh, levels, or at least they could detect it. Um, so, uh, I think we need to be much more demanding. I think we need to be uh, concerned about the influence of big industry, I think, uh, on regulators and on regulatory bodies. I think we need to hold law firms accountable for their actions. The same law firms that are defending uh, pesticide companies today are exactly some of the same law firms that uh, defended big tobacco. And, you know, that's not exactly in their byline. We're going to uh, represent corporate misconduct and misdoers <laughs> wherever they are, anytime, anywhere. Um, that's not what they're being uh, held to hold themselves up as. If that's what they want to do, fantastic. But then say it. Say it. We're just here to represent corporate interests. And regardless of corporate misconduct, we're going to defend them, even if it's uh, costing millions of people lives, even if these companies are spraying chemicals that they know are harmful uh, to the public's health. Then just say it. Uh, but don't like, you know, hide behind this veneer of, you know, truth and justice. Um, we need to hold all wrongdoers accountable and be really, really, really mindful of uh, potential conflicts and something called regulatory capture, where whereby regulators get controlled by the industries that they're seeking to uh, to regulate. Yeah, well said. Hey, we've got about five minutes but before I let you go, and I thought maybe we could just dedicate that last five minutes to a, a brief conversation just around exercise. I know your own habits around exercise have changed, and I was just curious to hear about the benefits of, of you know, aerobic form of exercise on, uh, you know, the prevention of, of Parkinson's. I think, you know, so I think the, the root causes are these environmental toxicants, uh, air pollution, certain pesticides, and these uh, dry cleaning chemicals. But I think there are lots of things that we can modify these effects. Um, and one of the big ways that we can modify that is uh, exercise. Studies have shown that vigorous exercise in your 40s, 50s, and 60s is associated with a 20% decreased risk of developing Parkinson's disease. Um, we know that people who exercise uh, more steps per day is associated with uh, greater longevity. We know that for people with Parkinson's disease, increasing number of studies demonstrate that exercise is beneficial and it appears to be almost independent of the exercise. It can be Tai Chi, it can be yoga, it can be biking, it can be swimming, it can be rock steady boxing, uh, it can be ball, tango and ballroom dancing. All of those things uh, have been studied or are widely adopted. It turns out that exercise might be really good for the energy producing parts of your cells called the mitochondria and air pollution, uh, these dry cleaning chemicals and certain pesticides like paraquat all damage the energy producing parts of cells called mitochondria. And your neurons are which are huge gas guzzling energy demanding uh, nerve cells have huge numbers of mitochondria, which might explain why uh, these things are causing neurological uh, disorders. It also turns out that it seems like to be vigorous exercise enough to make you sweat uh, is really beneficial. 
uh, for people with the disease. And that exercise releases growth factors, trophic factors uh, in the brain that can be protective of the nerve cells that you have. So there are lots and lots of reasons to exercise, um, whether you have Parkinson's disease or whether you don't ever want to get uh, Parkinson's uh, disease. You know, before coming on your show, I did my swim because I knew you were going to keep me up a little bit later. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I had to get my, my swim in uh, early. Um, but I think there are tons of things that we can do uh, to reduce our risk of ever developing these debilitating conditions. Again, Parkinson's disease is not a natural consequence of aging. Alzheimer's disease is not a natural consequence of aging. These, lung cancer is not a natural consequence of aging. These are artificial consequences of aging. If we modify our behaviors, and more importantly, if we as a society take actions to reduce our exposure to these toxins, we'll all live longer, healthier lives, less money being spent on health care expenditures, and um, more time uh, to enjoy our friends, our family, and the gift of life. Yeah, and relatively light exercises, okay? I know you said breaking a sweat would be ideal, but in terms of intensity, do you have a focus on how hard you go each day when you exercise or for how long as well? So, the, you know, uh, Peter T and others have written these great book on Outlive and, and stuff like that. So there are people who know way, 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 way more than I do. The study that showed a decreased risk was uh, three and a half to four hours of vigorous exercise, something akin to running and swimming. Uh, to do it, I tried to do 30 to 60 minutes of, uh, you know, reasonable exercise. I bike to work uh, soon, weather permitting. Um, so there are lots and lots of things that people uh, can do, even if it's walking a mile a day. Um, that's a great uh, place to start. I routinely recommend that people with Parkinson's disease exercise at least an hour a day if they can. Um, but, you know, people are at all different stages and you can start out with the, you know, walking to the mailbox and walking back. Uh, and that's where you are. That's where you are. There's chair yoga. There's tons and tons of things that can be done. And we should be supporting people at all different levels wherever they are on their journey. Right. Really good catching up with you. I really appreciate you making the time to come on and I'm cheering for you, man. I, I love your passion for the message. I love the hope in your message. And I know so many people out there are being inspired either on behalf of themselves or uh, their loved ones around them. So, hey, keep doing what you do, man. I appreciate your work. So can I just conclude with, you know, we're, we're coming into the Christmas season here uh, uh, in just five days. And we've received gifts from previous generations. Uh, as I, we alluded to earlier, we, we inherited a world that's largely free of polio. We've inherited a world where drinking and driving is socially unacceptable. We've inherited a world where HIV is preventable and treatable. And those are all based on the actions of ordinary people in Australia, ordinary people in New York City, ordinary people in San Francisco. A woman, Candace Leitner in California, whose 12-year-old daughter was struck by a drunk driver. And four, four days after her daughter dies from a drunk driver, she forms what becomes Mad Mothers Against Drunk Driving. And eight years later, uh, drinking and driving is illegal in every state in the United States. Uh, drinking age is raised to 21. Blood alcohol levels drop to 0.08. And 10,000 people per year in the United States alone, 10,000 people per year in the United States alone, don't die in drinking and driving accidents because of Candace Leitner. So these are gifts that we've inherited from previous generations. Just like you have an obligation to receive a gift, you have an obligation to reciprocate. And we can't pay back Candace Leitner. We can't pay, pay back Larry Kramer. We can't pay back Jonas Salk, but we can pay forward. And we can create a world where Parkinson's disease is increasingly rare, where people like you don't have to see their grandmother. Your grandmother doesn't need to suffer from a disease that might be largely preventable. And if we take actions today to decrease the amount of pesticides that we use to get rid of toxic pesticides that we know are linked to Parkinson's disease, if we stop using chemicals for dry cleaning that are 
associated with a 500% increased risk of Parkinson's disease and are known to cause cancer. If we breathe cleaner air, we'll all live longer, healthier lives, and we'll give a world uh, back where Parkinson's disease is extraordinarily rare. Maybe we're six people in Australia get it per year instead of uh, six million people in the world having it at any one point in time. Yeah. Well said, man. Thanks again for coming on. Thank you, Tyson. <laughs>